Now let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, to the 14th chapter of Genesis. One of the great men of all time, the great men of Scripture, of course, is Abraham. And in the 12th chapter of Genesis, you have the call of Abraham, where God calls Abraham out of idolatry and begins to build a people, using Abraham as the father of this people. Uh, He calls him to go out into a country that he will give him, a land Abraham's never seen. And by faith, Abraham goes out, not knowing whither he's going, says the book of Hebrews. In uh, the 13th chapter, Abraham and his nephew Lot go their separate ways. They part amicably, but uh, Lot's sheep uh, and cattle have grown so much, and Abraham's that when they're together, there's not sufficient pasture. So Abraham says, Lot, you choose the land that suits you, and we best separate. Lot looks towards Sodom, a wicked city, but grassy lands nearby, and he chooses that area. He pitches his tent towards Sodom. In the 14th chapter, we have the first war recorded in Scripture, where some four kings come against five kings. These are city-states, and the kings of these city-states are listed in their states, one of which is Sodom, and the other which is Gomorrah. And four kings come against five kings, coming against the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. In the process, Lot is taken captive. These uh, city-states are conquered. Lot is taken captive, and uh, many goods are taken off. And uh, this word, word of this, comes to Abraham. Verse 11 of chapter 14, it says, And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. They took Lot, Abram's brother, other Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. When Abram hears about it, he decides to go and seek to rescue him. In verse 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them. And he brought back all of the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So he rescues him. Now, an interesting thing happens at this point. A man appears that we've heard nothing of before by the name of Melchizedek, a priest. In uh, verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And Abraham gave him tithes of all. Isn't that interesting? Who is this person? You don't hear anything about him prior to now. He comes on the scene, he goes off the scene. In a sense, he's greater than Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth of all, and he blesses Abraham, and the lesser is blessed of the greater. You don't hear anything about him for a thousand years. A thousand years later, David, in the 110th Psalm, says that the Messiah will be 
a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then you don't hear anything more about him for another thousand years. And the writer of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. He says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, uh, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. What's the writer saying? The writer saying, well, there's more than meets the eye here. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Mel is king, in Hebrew, king of righteousness. He's also king of Salem. Salem means peace. Maybe that's Jerusalem. Here's this man, king of righteousness, king of peace. As far as his appearance in Scripture, nothing said about his birth or his death. Does that mean he wasn't born, he didn't die? No. There are those who think that. There are those who believe that this was a theophany, an appearance of God in human form, which happens to Abraham on occasion. But I don't believe this was a theophany. I believe what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God, in guiding the writing of the Scripture, so guided the writer that when this person appears, nothing is mentioned about his birth and nothing is mentioned about his death, so that in Scripture he'll be designed like Jesus, who being God the Son, has always existed and always will exist. And Jesus would be after the order of priesthood of this priest. He wouldn't be after the order of Aaron because he'd be a greater high priest than Aaron. He'd be the true high priest that Aaron was a picture of, our great high priest, who is the go-between between God and man and who offers himself. Abram would offer a goat or a bull. Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice for us. For our guilt. And so Melchizedek pictures Jesus and his priesthood. Now, uh, at this point, the king of Sodom offers Abraham reward. He says, You take the spoils and I'll take the persons. And Abraham responds. Verse 22 Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Abraham would be God's man. And he wanted clearly understood that he wasn't made rich by any worldly person. God alone had provided for him. Nor did he want any alliance at all any dealings, really, with the king of Sodom, who was king of a very wicked city from which we get the name Sodomy. 
And oh, Abram, Abraham would not compromise for one second on that. Well, you have a conflict there, and then you have a covenant. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 15, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. What's, what's Abraham feeling the need of? What's he desire? He desires security. He's got fears. By night, he attacked these four kings and was successful, but he's made powerful enemies now. Suppose they come back and attack him. Uh, God says, don't be afraid. I am your shield. Abraham, in order for them to get to you, they have to go through me. I am your shield. Do you have fears? Maybe you're, maybe you're getting serious about really doing God's will in your business or in your high school. <laughs> really doing God's will. Really take a stand. No, I'm sorry. In this company, we're not going to do that anymore because that's not right. Or as a doctor, as a doctor, you stand up and you say, abortion is wrong. Down at the med center. Just recently, doctor called in assist in this abortion, doctor said, no, sir. Five other doctors called in, you assist in this abortion, doctor said, no, sir. Hmm. You can lose your job in a hurry that way. And it's natural to have fears when we start talking about doing God's will. We'll lose. We'll get hurt. God says, Abram, I'm your reward. And I am your shield. And he says the same thing to you and to me. He sent the disciples out. He sends us out. He says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Wait a minute. It can, I can get hurt out there. He said, don't be afraid. The, the hairs of your head are numbered. Not a hair can fall without me letting it fall. Not a sparrow falls without your heavenly father. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield. Same promise made to us. You go out and you tackle doing my will, whatever it may be, and you trust me. If we do get hurt, and we may well get hurt, all things work together for good. If it gets through the shield, it's because he led it through the shield for my good. It becomes his dealing with me in a painful way for my good. Now, Abraham's desire for security, and then Abraham's desire for a son. Verse 2, Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? Verse 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And God brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. You see all those stars, Abraham? Have you ever seen so many? Lord, that's amazing. You know what, Abraham? You're going to have descendants that numerous. So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it, God counted it unto him for righteousness. Underline that, star that. That's a very important verse in Scripture. First time in the Bible it's explained in detail how to be right with God. Key verse, justification. Last Sunday, Dr. Timothy George of Samford spoke here 
on justification by faith alone. Martin Luther's great war cry. Uh, how is a man just? How is he reckoned righteous? Righteousness is the perfect obedience which the law requires. You and I don't have that perfect obedience. We've broken God's law. But God has a way of reckoning us righteous as if we had that perfect obedience. Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it unto him for righteousness. Uh, he desired a seed, didn't he? How was that fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled in a physical sense. He had Isaac and then and he had Ishmael. And he had many, many physical descendants. The whole Jewish nation. But it was fulfilled in a deeper way, in spiritual descendants. You and I are the fulfillment of that promise. If you're a Christian, we are Abraham's children. Over in uh, Galatians 3.16, uh, excuse me, not 3.16, in Galatians 3.7, Know ye not therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And that seed, I will give you a seed, one will come out of your own loins. Ultimately, that seed was Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16 now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He saith not, and to seeds, which is many, is of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of that. And Abraham believes God about this promised seed. And God accounts him righteous. This faith is instrumental in him being declared not guilty or justified in the sight of God which is a permanent legal standing in the sight of God. That doesn't mean that God accepted his faith in lieu of his obedience or righteousness. No, God accepts the death of Christ in lieu of our obedience. But when we have faith in God's promise to forgive us through Christ, when we have faith in the seed of Abraham, Jesus. Then God credits our sinful record to Christ, who's already paid for it. And he credits Christ's perfect record for, to us. And then he says, I declare you not guilty, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. So I have a perfect record. If you're trusting in Christ, you have a perfect record. The same way Abraham did how was Abraham saved, just like we're saved? By faith in Christ who would come and die for his sin. Remember it says, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Abraham saw that I would come. He read a lot more in God's promises than we realize. And uh, so he was saved just like we are. Matter of fact, this is discussed in Romans 4, where Paul says, how is Abraham justified? He's discussing the fact that justification is by grace through faith. It's a gift. We don't earn God's acceptance. He says, well, how was Abraham saved? And uh, he quotes this verse. It says, not by works, for if it would by works, Abraham could glory. He could boast. But what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, 
if I was working to be accepted, I'm trying to be good enough to be accepted. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. It wouldn't be a gift. It'd be something God owed me. But to him that worketh not, I don't think in terms of deserving salvation, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. What is justification? God declaring the ungodly not guilty for the sake of Christ. Christ died for those ungodly. And when they put their trust in Christ and surrender in true repentance, God declares the ungodly not guilty. Now, at the same time he declares them not guilty, he changes their hearts so that their behavior begins to change. To him that worketh not, says Paul, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's saving faith. Now, uh, there's some problems with this. We say, wasn't Abraham already justified when he went out by faith? Yes, he was. Well, why wait until now to mention that? Because God wanted to tie justification to the promised seed because we're justified through faith in Christ. And so he waits until the seed is mentioned to mention justification by faith alone. Well, another objection that comes up, if you turn in your Bible to James chapter 2, uh, you find where James seems to contradict what we've been seeing. In uh, James 2, uh, starting with verse 18, Excuse me, let's start with uh, verse 20. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Hmm. When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how that faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith... Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. That seems to directly contradict what Paul says in Romans 4. No wonder Luther wanted to throw James out of the Bible. But James is not really contradicting Paul. It's not that James and Paul are fighting each other, where Paul is saying a man is justified by faith and not by works, and James is saying, no, it's by faith plus works. They're like soldiers on the, in the same army fighting enemies coming from opposite direction. They're standing back to back, soldiers in the same army. Paul is fighting the person who says, our works, our good deeds contribute to our salvation. He says, no, it's a gift it's not by our good deeds. It's by grace through faith alone, not by works. James is fighting the man who says he has faith, but it hadn't changed his life. There's no resulting obedience. There's no works. as fruit of his faith. And James saying that kind of faith won't save you. The faith that saves is a faith that results in our lives being changed. 
Christ lives in our hearts. When Abraham offered Isaac, it was 25 years later than when he looks at the stars. And the statement made about Abraham's faith, that namely that it's the kind of faith that bears fruit, it justifies, is fulfilled. It's true here, it's fulfilled when he does this tremendous act of obedience and offers his son. Suppose you had a son who was born with a congenital problem. He limped. And you bring him to me when he's six years old. I'm a surgeon. I go in and I do surgery and I walk out and I say the operation was a success. He will walk without a limp. Three months later, he walks without a limp. The statement was true when I said it. The operation was a success. It was fulfilled when he walks without a limp. It was true, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. True all along. It's fulfilled down here when he offers his son. It shows that this kind of faith was a kind of faith that really resulted in obedience. It's saving faith. Now, uh, we see Abraham's desire for security, his desire for a son, finally his desire for certainty. In verse 7, God said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He took all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against the other. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. And uh, verse 4, verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Euphrates, unto the great river, unto the river of Egypt, unto the great river of Euphrates. Now, what is that all about? God says, Abram, I give you this land for an everlasting possession, the land of Canaan. And Abraham said, Lord, how do I know that you give me that land? What is the land all about? Abraham got to thinking about that land. He said, how am I going to receive this land for an everlasting inheritance? I'm going to die. You know what? Under the image of this land, I believe God is promising me another land. A land that I'll go to when I leave this land. Heaven. I'm convinced that's what God really is promising me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to build a permanent house down here. I'm going to live in a tent like a pilgrim would live in to declare my faith that I believe I'm a stranger 
in this promised land, traveling on to the true land that God is promising me. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as a stranger, as did his son Isaac and his son Jacob, all inheritors of the same promise. They who do such things declare that they believe there's another land. They look for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And God is not ashamed to be called their God because he hath prepared for them a city. You know, if heaven isn't there, God ought to be ashamed. Why? Because he awoke those hopes in Abraham and in you and in me. But God's not ashamed because there is such a city. So when Abraham says, God, how can I know that I'm going to inherit it? What he's saying is, God, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? Would you like to know that you're going to heaven? Would you like to have that settled and be sure of that? Absolutely positive. That's what Abraham wanted. And you'd think that Abraham would say, well, I mean, God would say, Abraham, I said it. Isn't that enough? I'm God. But he doesn't do that. He says, Abraham, take some cows and cut them down the middle and take these birds and so on. And uh, lay those pieces side by side with a little space in between. That was the way you did a covenant in those days, a contract. If you want to make a contract with a man, you'd cut this cow down the middle, you'd put the pieces like that, and you'd walk in between and you'd say, okay, I promise to do this, and he'd say, I promise to do that. And that was the way you made a covenant. Different, different cultures, they make it different ways. The idea was, if I don't fulfill my end of it, may I be cut in half like that cow was cut in half. Hmm. Suppose Jesus came to you in uh, some way and he said, you've been concerned about whether you're actually going to heaven, whether you're a real Christian. And I want you to know it's settled. You are going to hell. I've reserved a room. You've got a bridal suite up there. It's right next to Frank Barker. It's all settled. <laughs> and you said, well, Lord... I really appreciate you coming and telling me this because it has been worrying me. But I, I, I tell you what, Lord, I've got a lawyer that does a lot of stuff for me. I wondered if I got him to draw up a legal paper to that effect, if you'd mind signing it. See, that's what God did here. God says, Abraham, you want me to draw up a legal paper and sign it? I'll be glad to do it if that'll help you. Isn't that gracious of God? God wants you to be sure. He doesn't want you going through life wondering whether you're going to make it. He wants you to be able to rear back and sing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. He wants you to be able to sing that. And He's done everything necessary. To enable you to sing. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, all hell, should endeavor to stop. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God promises. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
which is shed for many for the remission of sin. This is the covenant. I ratify the covenant. Drink all you have. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that God entered into a covenant with Abraham and with us. And it's settled. If I trust in Jesus, I am washed in his blood and born of his spirit. My faith must bear fruit, as Abraham's did, to be genuine faith. But it's settled. Do you have that assurance? Have you closed with Christ? Has he changed your life? Did your fruit bear faith? If so, don't fear. Don't fear doing his will. Don't fear loss. He is your reward. Nothing can get through that shield without his permission. Don't fear death or life. And if you haven't done that, do fear. Fear. You have many reasons to fear. Fear death. Fear life. A little poem puts it like this. At the devil's booth, all things are sold. Each ounce of dross costs its ounce of gold. For a cap and bell, our lives we pay. Bubbles we buy with a whole soul's tasking. Tis only heaven that's given away. Tis only God may be had for the asking. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, do you have assurance of salvation? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? If not, why not right now turn to Christ and surrender His will, surrender your will to Him. Trust Him as your Savior. Trust God to justify you for Jesus' sake. Pray in your heart like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Lord, I trust in you, not my own works, and I purpose to obey you in true repentance. Amen.